Okay, so I am here in uh, Prague for, among other reasons, to participate in the Prague Summer Writers Program. And I'm here with Nick Anthony, who's a participant in the program. Nick, could you please introduce yourself to our <laughs> yeah, of course. audience? Yeah, I came up doing stand-up comedy in America and was lucky enough to make a living at it for 15 18 years, and uh, then the pandemic hits, and nobody could do anything in terms of live performance, and it really kind of, the break was nice. And at the same time, I had um, uh, had this crazy experience in Vietnam in 2017, where uh, a buddy of mine I was traveling with decided not to go back to, Mar to America, and I wanted to write a story about loss, not to death, but to life, and... Um, Got into, you know, taking some classes at UCLA and then met Robert Evers, and he was the one of the founding members of the uh, Prague Summer Writing Program back in the 90s. And he introduced me to Richard, and bing, bang, boom, now I'm here in Prague with you. Okay, well, maybe what we could do is, uh, is develop your character, and then what we'll do is uh, work our way into, you presented two chapters of a novel that you hope to get published which we workshopped, so I, I want to I want to look at that as well. But to start with, you grew up in uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis. Yeah. What were your ambitions as a young man? So when I was a kid, um, my mom, my mom has seven siblings, big Catholic family on my dad's side too, and a lot of readers and you know, educated, but working class, labor Democrats, you know, Catholic, just very salt of the earth people and just nice, good people and funny. And I was the first grandkid. And so I was beloved by all these you know, aunts and uncles. And one of my aunts lived in Las Vegas. My mom sent me over when I was very young, 12 years old by myself to go visit my aunt. And we drove to San Diego, to California, at Mission Beach, I think it's called Mission Beach. They have a giant old school Ferris wheel, and it was the first time I'd ever seen the ocean, and first time I ever had salt in my, my mouth, salt water, which was very, uh, you know, growing up in 10,000 lakes, it was, there's no salt water lakes, and I was so thirsty, I went up to the boardwalk, and I saw a street performer, uh, this old magician, all these people were around him, and I just got really captivated by the fact that he was able to hold this presence, and he had everyone's attention, and he was making people laugh and smile and all this stuff. I just forgot about time. Hours later, my aunt and two cops come running up. They were looking for me. And I must have had stars in my eyes because when we went back to Vegas, I bought a book on sleight of hand. Now you see it, now you don't. It's famous. Um, it's just, it's got all these great hand-drawn illustrations of how to do like coin and card tricks and um, manipulations. And so when I was 12, I started my path down Eventually, uh, by the time I was 16, I was the number one ranked junior close-up magician for the International Brotherhood of Magicians. So this is this is in addition to your stand-up uh, mm -hmm. skills. Well, what's funny is that all of the people I grew up with all mixed the magician, and then I had to to get respect in the magic or in the comedy scene because everyone you know I was already I had an agent as a magician when I was like 18, and so I was making a lot. The comedians all hated me because I wasn't just doing comedy. I was like a middle class stand up comic where I, you know, wasn't making a ton of money, but I was doing comedy for a living full time. 
Did you write your own material? Absolutely. Uh, One thousand percent. No, there's such a snobbiness in the comedy scene that if you're even doing a premise that is somebody else's, not even the punchline. If someone's like, hey, I'm I'm doing ketchup packets. I got my ketchup packet bit and then you have a ketchup packet bit. Comedians will you'll get raked over the coals. And to the point where you call up people and you're like, hey, is anyone doing anything on this? That was a good thing because it made me, force me to be like hyper, hyper original. The magic community is not like that. They're and, just set tricks, right? And they also have a lot of set pattern, yeah. which I didn't realize until I was a comedian that I would look back at some of my favorite magicians like, you're doing Seinfeld jokes in your, in your act. You're like, oh, that broke my heart. Right. I just adored these people and I thought they were so funny. And then you realize like, by stand-up comedian terms, you're a hack. That was a really weird revelation. Okay, so humor is one of my top criteria for great writing. So I want to know how you made people laugh because you had to write it down first, right? Yeah. The shortest answer is Hemingway or is uh, Shakespeare. Brevity is the soul of wit. It's right. the it's the conciseness and it's the turn. It's the, the surprise. Yes, yeah, the surprise. This is not, people don't like this because it, they consider it like if you're punching down, but people think it's funny. What do you mean? You mean insulting or Making putting people, people down? Yeah, or? That, 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 like roasting is so popular. Right. So now, insults. That is done in a, in a loving way, but there is a, it's like you're aware of it at a roast. Hey, we're punching down, but we love this guy. But so what did, what got you the biggest laughs from what you wrote? I have a joke, and this is just, this was an early, this was the first time I was like, I think I can do this. Yes. I have a joke where I say, um, you know, I was raised by all women, so I thought I should have been an expert on women. But all that happened was I wore my towel up to my armpits till I was like 15. <laughs> and that gets a, like that, you know, that was that first big laugh that I got. It was that early on joke. I was like, oh, yes. that's good. And again, it's that like a, not an orgasm, but I mean, it must be. Just pure delight it's to absolutely, especially yeah. considering you are the one that came up with the it's joke. Drug. It's a true like. Right. There, there is comedians talk about those all the time. When you have new material, right. That's killing. Yes. It, it's heroin times ten. I mean, okay. you got a new bit. Oof. And again, Oof. Well, why is that? Because it's like I created this. I'm causing joy in the world, or what? It's the it's a god complex on some level. If you really boil it down, it's you think that you have, you are you have control okay. when we probably have very little. Yeah. And you're going into a room now, and you're getting this response that's just it feels like uh, unconditional love when yes. a room full of people laughs all at once, and then that attention comes towards you. <laughs> Like after a show, you get to talk to people in a way that you don't normally get to talk to people. And that kind of ruined my socializing, to be honest with you, because you would just, you know, girls that I could never talk to all of a sudden were coming up to me because right. I was making them laugh. That's the secret to, you know, I have, I mean, I'm, you know, just a regular looking dude, but I've definitely dated above my class because, you know, you make somebody yeah. laugh, they're, yeah. they're coming. You don't want to lose that i mean you this is and i guess why i want to know the secret uh, because you are evolving or your path is heading toward being a, a novelist i assume or at least we'll that's see. one of the things yeah. that you're you're yeah. shooting for we'll see yeah so what do you hope to take from your stand-up and and move into 
uh, your novel writing? Well, I had a short film called The Nihilist, which I think is somewhere online. But one of the, my criticism of it, it's it won a bunch of independent film festival stuff, and it's we built a World War One battlefield in my parents' backyard and created the Battle of Verdun, I believe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's been a while since I've thought about it, but um, there's no humor. It's just last night. It's been since last night that you thought about it. Well, that, yeah, but I haven't thought but about it since last night. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Last night you brought it up. But it's not funny, you know, when I look back no, at it, it's no, really it's, heavy. It's yeah. about suicide and... And I was like, oh, man, what an opportunity to bring in some humor. Because look at something like uh, Tarantino's Django. Right. It's such a heavy subject. You're talking about slavery and, you know, uh, retaliation. And, but yet there's still the scene in that movie that, where the, the Jonah Hill character can't get his KKK hood on right. right, right. And they're yelling at the guy whose wife cut the holes in the... And you're like, this is so funny. <laughs> and then... It's when you can take suspense and humor and put them together, it's right. the salty sweet. It's that nice combo where you, it cleans the palate and now you get into like the really tough stuff. When I see it done well, when there is, I'm laughing and I'm like terrified or, ooh, that is, you got me, man. You're playing me like a fiddle. So in that respect, I completely agree that, I, and I, even I who have like pseudo retired from doing stand up until I'm kind of done with this book, I would definitely want to go back. Because of that that wonderful buzz you're talking about as much yeah. as anything. Yeah, well, the buzz and I think, you know, I was just competing at the highest possible levels. Okay. And I think it just was, it got a little exhausting. You know, when you're, when you're constantly got your dukes up and you're constantly having to be not just funny, but like being on a show with Dave Chappelle, like the best. Yeah. I, I produced a very popular show in LA that is still going on. It's called The Secret Show at the Blind Barber. And it was a barber shop that had a speakeasy behind it. And we just started a monthly show. And from show one, it just sold out every time. So you basically wanted to kind of wind down a bit from that high level. And, and you figure writing a novel is a, is a good way of keeping your creativity going. I but think, again, the idea that I was in control of it is maybe a good story, but it wouldn't be the truth. The mm. truth is, I think, again, from doing the if we look at the trajectory from like hey magic wasn't enough i want to do stand-up that's about yes, ideas yeah. and then with stand-up i feel like there is a built-in limitation what i call stand-up is essentially a comp it's it's you have a joke delivery system right and what that means to me is it's a combination of the what your voice sounds like yeah. some people just have like a funny sounding voice like really gravelly what you look like yeah. and then can you naturally write for what your because you only get to write for one character. Like as a novelist, I can write for all sorts of different characters. Yes, okay. I couldn't create enough material fast enough to have a show every yeah. a new show. Yeah, you. I mean, it got popular there with like the best, like Louis C.K. and these guys were all doing hours every year, and I was like lucky to pull out maybe you know of of, of, of like Tonight Show quality great material. I was lucky to maybe get five to twenty minutes a year. Right. And that back in the day, I mean, Seinfeld did the same act for 20 years. It was, it was, but then it shifted while I was learning how to do comedy. And the new thing was like, we need new. And part of it was the internet was fueling that. Yes, your, your material yes. was getting burned. We, if we can just get back to, I, I know it's maybe not the easiest question to, to answer, but you've talked about surprise. What else is the secret to writing funny 
I know it's short, okay, brevity, but what else is there that people could take away from your experience? I think usually where there's intelligence, there's humor. Very rarely do I see, like, I'm trying to think of somebody that where you were like, oh, maybe they weren't like the craziest, smartest person and they were still super funny. And, and okay, the, what explains that, though, is because they are able to make all sorts of connections yeah. that other people wouldn't necessarily make. Possibly, yeah. Like, what what is it? You know, how do we bottle this? Personally, I think the brain is a muscle and you work it. You work it. And, yeah. and how do you work it again? I did it consciously because I, I remember being, I was lucky enough to do this, the magic stuff. But then I think I was getting some feedback from my peers in terms of like kids I grew up with. They're like, getting a little big for your britches here, kiddo. And I didn't like that. I didn't like that. I was like thinking I was something cool. And so I really started reading. It's self-doubt drives, you know, yeah. the smartest people often have the highest level of self-doubt. Yeah. But again, so you're saying it's just reading everything yeah. you can? And, and, you know, reaching further than your grasp, getting out of your comfort zone, not letting fear decide decisions. Okay, uh, but what's that mean? It means like if you truly want it, like I don't know how many people have come up to me and said, I want to do stand-up comedy. Right. And then I'm like, well, have you ever just gotten on a stage and done it and they'll say 99% of them will say no but we're we're talking about writing here again and yeah. and and the and the, the key behind it so well, even it's, how, it's, how many like if you talk to Robert and these guys how many students have they had and how many people just never finish their book right so it's just like to get you know just to get yourself into the arena let's just do it and then you know we're all worried about oh what's it going to be like most people don't even finish their novels. Right, right. And that is, I know, you know, when we think about all these finished works, well, there's a sea of books sitting on computer files that, you know, I, either are terrible or they just needed to be developed. Or even I, writing this book, I've had moments where it's tremendous doubt. There's tremendous, yes, yes. tremendous As doubt. As there should be. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. It, it, if in the end you get something good. Yes, yes. But if you just... Well, uh, and if, the, if it overwhelms you, obviously, that's... And it that's has come the, close yes, at times. Yes, okay. Yeah. So moving from, from comedy then, you got into screenwriting, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. Okay, so... Well, they kind of happen at the same time. There's a great film school at the Minneapolis College... And a connection to where we are, Prague, he was from Tunisia, uh, Hafed Bousseta, and he learned Czech to come to the Czech film school. And this would have been, I don't know, I think in the 80s probably. And then he somehow ended up in Minneapolis and started this really great program. And, and you I, studied under him. And That's I feel so like I stumbled into it. And for the first year, he was so hardcore, like you couldn't even write dialogue in your scenes. He was really trying to get you to write visually. Right. And then year two, now we could start to fold in dialogue. And now that you knew the structure, and he was just so meticulous. And um, So, okay, so difference between comedy writing and what you learned at that college then? Let's, you know, let's say I would write a scene and it was two pages long. It, the, the final scene would have been a half a page. You cut everything so far back. Because what? You want the audience to be involved? It, just the way I naturally write... I think I just overwrite. Okay. And then you, you, you realize very quickly, like, the audience already knows a bunch of this stuff. 
Right. And, and if anything, you're boring them. You don't want to talk down to them, obviously. And yeah, and and you can't surprise them when they're already like, well, I already see all the, you know, I already know all this stuff. Yeah. So when you pull it, and then also when we're speaking, if you actually like record people, they're not saying what they mean. There's a lot of times where it's, what they say is just a pause or a look or, and so when you really start to examine it on the page and then when you start reading good and you really examine uh, good films and good books there's just a clippedness to not just the dialogue in so what's the sorry what's the difference between comedy and screenwriting stand up comedy and screenwriting the, the, the writing for, for for each of those any any big obvious difference well the one being that you can only write for one person's perspective as a stand up comedian yeah. so now you you do it, open it up that. yeah, yeah. But then the other side of it, the, the limitation, if we look at it in terms of novel writing, the big difference was it's only in scene. Everything is in scene. There is no summary. Yes. So, and there can be voiceover and stuff like that. The scene it, is, the, the, obviously, the scene is on it, the screen. And, yeah. Yes. And it's, it's such, I mean, obviously, films and television are so popular that it changed. You know, you go back to the 19th century and it's like, it's a lot of summary and okay. people didn't have you know, anything to entertain them. So a thousand page book of just like, oh, this is great. Um, but then screenplays, yeah, there's just, it's a, it's a very visual medium. Yes. Uh, okay, so this brings us up to today then. <laughs> and, and your novel uh, uh, that we workshop here in Prague at, at the Summer Writers Program. And interestingly enough, it, I mean, that's the question, Such so much of it seems autobiographical, but only you know what percentage, because maybe could you give us a, just a, a, a short praise yeah. of what you presented to the class? What I presented to the class was the first two chapters of a novel that's loosely titled right now, Two Hits of Acid in Cambodia. It's about a character who was basically got his first writing job, but then the show got canceled and he didn't know what he was going to do with himself. So him and a friend whose dad had recently died of cancer caused by Agent Orange that he received in Vietnam decided to go to Southeast Asia for like this sojourn. The, the main character was legitimately thinking about not coming back and going through this process he realizes, in fact, not only does he need to go back, he needs to finish what he started in Los Angeles. And what ends up happening at the end is the other character ends up staying. So why did you workshop it? Well, what it ended up being about, there's a lot of layers to it. For me, it's about loss. It's about losing people. There's a lot of stories about death and people you know, dying, and I think obviously that's those things are very difficult. I just don't see, especially from men, I don't see what is it like to just lose like one of your best friends and they're still, like the, the relationship just fell apart and it can be as damaging as, you know, losing someone to death. And um, I wanted to just examine that. And then what ended up coming out of it was kind of a treatsy about, well, what do men look like post the Me Too movement? What... What, well, that's a bit of a jump, I don't understand. Just the idea of, like, once you start getting into relationships of, of men, what's what essentially is happening right now is the entire relationship of 
men and women are, are being examined, and rightfully so. Right. There's a tremendous amount of... Sorry, uh, so why did, you, why did you workshop this? Because I was diving into something that if I didn't, if I wasn't super sharp about it, right. I know it would fail. Well, like why I, is that? I needed female perspective. I needed, you know... You needed old white guy perspective, yeah, yeah, which you got all, yeah, from yeah. this direction. Yeah. And you needed, yes. All of it, yeah. You needed all of it. So, I, I mean, you wanted to kind of a, was it like a, a focus group? Is that how you see it? I, I, it's just learning. I mean, here's a very concrete example. Um, this is something we take for granted when we talk, but like I'm at an age where if I date somebody who's my age, I would still call them my girlfriend. And you would say, oh, I met this girl. If I write that down, if I call a 38-year-old woman a girl in fiction, right. you would get skewered. And right. so you have to write, even if they're 20, you have to say a woman in yes. literature it, right now. That is the cost of entry of like just being, all right, here's another example. Women uh, from like uh, Asian American women have told me, this is just something I've learned, they hate it when they're referred to, the color of their skin is referred to as something that is edible. Right. And that is now like a cliche that, they yeah, just the idea of like, you know, caramel or almond, or it's this idea that they're being devout. Like, yes, okay. And that was like, oh, wow. That was offensive. That they found that that was something. And it's like. It's, it's almost like you're politically correcting your work here. Is that what you're talking about? I'm, I'm just trying not to step on the obvious landmine. Because I don't want to be politically correct because the point of the story is that I'm actually eventually going to skewer what I think the, the culture thinks about sex. It's this idea that we all have the genesis of all of our perspective on sex is based off of specifically Puritan Christianity. Right. And although I was raised Catholic, I'm a secular Christian at best. I don't believe in the tenets of the religion, but yet I take the shame about sex. And when I got to Southeast Asia and I saw a culture that looked at sex with a completely different lens, it allowed me to kind of turn back and see my own culture and go, well, why do I think the things that I think? Okay, so you are workshopping for a panoramic view of what you've written so I assume because you want to improve it or do you think it's yeah. first and foremost it's just I'm trying to get better at writing you know like there's just a, a, a tremendous humility and like I just want to get better outside of anything I mean regardless if we're dealing with salacious topics or not like I like hearing a lot of perspectives of people who are just better writers so so What's the best thing? In a, I know you've <clears throat> you've workshopped this previously mm -hmm. at UCLA, yeah. right? So, can you give some examples of the best type of feedback that you think has improved what you're doing? Absolutely, I can speak specifically to what. So I, I started, you know, just because I was like, oh, I don't want to start novel one because I'm like, I'm already a writer, I know how to write. So I just out of ego, I guess I started in novel two and then it goes up to novel five. And then Robert's class is like the, it's a nine month master class. So I did two, three, four. I don't think I, do you mean chapter? No, I'm sorry. I apologize. This is like the, within the UCLA extension program, you would take the class would be novel writing one, two, three, four, and five. Oh, I see. And they would each be 10 week sessions. And then through that, you would then 
could take it with the same professor or you could take it with different professors. And I took it with uh, two other professors and then Robert's the third professor. And, you know, I really didn't know what I was doing. Like, I wasn't really well educated uh, as far as English, you know, Minnesota public schools did do a great job. No. And I didn't know that really fully until I like, oh, this is how you actually write literature and, you know, like just dialogue versus summary versus scene. I, I really didn't know the format. Okay, so, so for example, uh, Robert uh, Evers provided us with how to read like a writer, a, a, a sort of summary of uh, how we should approach the, the texts that were studied in the, in the program. Yeah. And I'll quickly run through its characterization, its character arcs, place setting, and the narrative voice, prose style, conflicts, turning points scene writing, tone breaks, and surprise and recognition. So these these all sort of have given you the structure that you can then build on? Is that it? For me, I came in with a ton of structure. That's the part screenwriting gave me in spades, was the ability to... I think what was exciting to me about novel writing was that I could. it felt more free. Because of all these different characters? Because of the characters and because you're a one-man band. I'm. If this is finished, I don't have to go ask somebody to help me shoot it and light it and fund it. And when it's done, I'm done. And right. then obviously you need help getting it published, but it's a little bit more singular in terms of voice. But the thing that Robert specifically helped me with was I was overwriting. I would, I would have these great points and then be basically be circling around, like telling the audience how great they were. Like, is it? And it's like, no, cut all that back, man. And just let, you got to leave room for the audience. Yeah. Give them the dignity to figure it out for themselves. Yeah. As you said, the space to, uh, to, to let their imagination run with the, the prods, the, the prompts, yeah. basically, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Is your two hits of acid in Cambodia, we looked at the first two chapters. Yeah. Is that anywhere online or not? Uh, I think the prologue. My, I wrote a prologue at one point. Okay, is that it's on, on your website? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I cut. That's been cut. So oh, okay, it, okay. Because it's a scene from later in the novel that I was using as a prologue. But okay, well, the reason uh, I ask is that I, I want to refer specifically to a few a few things in this. Right? Yeah. So yeah. so hopefully the reader will bear. Hopefully the by, listener will bear with yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. But to start with, you come out with the and talking about loss. And, and I'm going to give you my workshop feedback yeah, I here. I love it. And then, and then we'll, you, can, you can react as the <laughs> novelist. Absolutely, yeah. So, death is an inescapable calamity. I thought that, just right there, very, very powerful. Then, comma, but I find it worse to lose someone to life. And I kind of jolted over the word to and thought, to life or in life? So me saying that, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to look at two some more? Or are you going to say, you know what? I'm really happy with two. I mean, so I'm assuming people can understand that the word calamity has been searched through for the exact specific, should it be catastrophe? Should it be devastating? Should it be, uh, I sent uh, Richard a copy and he's like, well, this is, you know, I think the first time I, I had it, it was death is devastating. And the idea was that it was the turn. It was like I was saying something kind of uh, plain 
And then the idea was that I'm flipping the plane, but he goes, no, this just feels pedestrian. And I was like, I, I, agreed, I agreed with him. Okay. Um, and so that's where I was like, well, what's a, what's a, what's a tastier way to describe this and a more original way? To, and that's going back to the comedian. me, like, what's no one else? Especially right. with the and opening you don't line. want a cliche. That totally. There is a huge difference between coming up with a beautiful Oscar Wilde's aphorism that's original. And personally... I love those. And I do too. If they're original, yeah. that's one of the reasons, along with humor, that I weep for. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, you go through all the books on my shelf, There's all those aphorisms are highlighted, and I love going back to them. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the next sentence in this paragraph here is, that's the first paragraph, is the repercussions of a close friend walking away can needle your mind for years I don't wish death upon a single soul, yet I appreciate the cleanness of his mercy. Now, as the reader, I disagree with that. Someone commits suicide, that stays with you every single day of the rest of your life. This is a, an argument that I'm kind of looking at and thinking, I'm engaged with that, which is what you would want, I would think. But I'm disagreeing with it, uh, and I'm expecting you to argue with me <laughs> is that how you were is that exactly it's very con yeah. confrontational it's intentionally Good. i'm trying to you know till the soil and i went to high school with people who took their life and i have close friends that i mean comedian friends and it, it's it's stuff maybe not somebody like in my actual family and maybe that would be different from my experience i you know was lucky enough to have my grandparents all four of them until i was like 35 years old so i didn't deal with a lot of death so right. just my experience as a human, death wasn't as tragic for me. Yes. And so I think that potentially allowed when I did lose someone, as I say, to life, it really walloped me because, because every day it felt, you know, it's like, you know, and I'm still figuring this out. So it's not like I, I don't want to pretend like I have it all uh, no, organized, but no. there's just a couple of them that really stick in my craw. That's so interesting, isn't it? Like, You've put the material out. I'm bringing my experience to it. And it's different, obviously, quite a bit different than your experience you're bringing to the writing. You're not going to take my feedback in class and say, oh, shit, I better change that. Because, no, I, this is what you firmly believe. And you are speaking about your take on life, on human nature. Well, the, the story's about action, right? So the... And I'm still working this out. You start with the idea of like, this is what I think the theme is. Yeah. And then you start writing something and it always changes. And by the end of it, you're like, oh, I thought the theme was this. And then once you actually see what physically happens in the story. So just like if this happens, you know, the, there's this famous thing that the, the South Park writers, you can Google their, they have a little speech that they do about uh, how they plot. And if, if you're just plotting and then, and then, and then, and then it's just it's it's boring that's what boring books and, and movies are right. but if you're plotting this happens because this happens then this happens therefore this happens they're reacting to each other everything's it's not just like you're on a, a mystery mind ride it's like oh it was always going to go this way obviously it still is that but you provide the illusion that when you're reading it this could go anywhere and that's right. what i'm trying to go for and i think why people are so excited about that is because what stories are is you're watching how other people solve problems 
Right. So that they, it, what, theoretically can help you in your life? That's how we pass information to the next generation. Right. How did you guys handle when you got broken up with? Oh, here's how I'm going to give you yes. my... The, the... That's how I read. But another one in our workshop, another participant, mm -hmm. looks for ambiguity. So you're... You're trying to provide a lesson, are you? It's didactic, if I'm being completely yeah. honest. And yeah. that can borderline on propaganda if you're not careful, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I, I'm i not interested in... At the end of the day, I want it to be self-evident. Yeah. I guess if yes. you really, like, pin me down, I do believe in capital T truths. Sorry? Capital T truths. I do yes. believe in... Yes. That, well, that's why I'm enjoying it. But yeah. I also... I'm disagreeing with you yeah. too, which is half half your readers may agree with yeah. you, the other half, but at least they're engaged. Is that it? Yes. And the other side of this is, you know, hopefully, God willing, I get this thing published. By the time you actually read the version that's published, that theme may be more subtle and or it may be edited out. I don't know. We're, you're catching me at a time when this project is still very raw. Right. And that that's kind of a fascinating thing of like, imagine if you were sitting there talking to, not to equivocate myself to someone who's like amazingly already successful, but like imagine reading like a, a developmental draft of Apocalypse Now or something before they had really figured it all out. And you're like, oh, wow, this went in a whole different direction. Right, right. You guys figured out something or you didn't, you know, like I could also fail at this and like, eh, you... It was good, but not great. You know, like that's the, the fear isn't even it being bad. The fear of it is just being meh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, <laughs> ambivalence is worse than like, I'd rather have someone to hate it than be like, I don't, I just didn't yeah. think about it after yeah. I read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apathy. It's awful. Yeah. 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 just like, I don't, I don't know. I don't even care. I didn't even. Sure. <laughs> like, I would rather literally have someone be like, this was terrible. Yeah, and at least there's a, some sort of strong response because yes. I know that for me, I'm I'm not going to write something that I think is terrible, and so as long as I can, I feel like I'm writing this book for like four people. One of them is just me now. The other one is me in like twenty years. I want that guy to be able to pick up this book and go, "You did it," and I'm still proud of it. Yeah, you did it. Whether I think I'm a way better writer than which I'm assuming I will. I just want to be able to go, hey, you know, the old version of me, you fucking did it, man. You, yeah. You, you, you wrote a novel that, you know, regardless of how anybody it's a else. It's challenge. Yeah, obviously. it's absolutely a challenge. Right. And then the other people, I would say, my friend who I went on that trip with, I'm writing it, you know, he's a big, when I think about the audience. But then, you know, and this to take all the highfalutin bullshit out of it, just the, the simplicity. Um, there's a kid I went to high school with who is the funniest dude. You talk about just naturally funny. Mm -hmm. Everyone I went to high school with would say, oh, Nick isn't the one who should be doing stand-up. It's Tony, this, this kid we went to high school with. And it, I say this to him all the time. He's like, dude, I, you're the funniest guy I know. And I've sat in a room with Dave Chappelle. Like, and he lives in, you know, like where we're from. And he's... A, great guy he's got a great wife and his family and he's but do you want to make him laugh is that what you want i want I, this is in my mind's eye what i have he works uh at this uh at this bar and in my mind's eye i want that book sitting somewhere where when it's slow he puts his foot up on the on the you know on the on the cooler okay. and he reads a couple pages about what it's like to travel through vietnam 
Why do you want him to be able to do that in, in your book? Because he, I don't, the, the, the most people aren't going to be able to do that. You know, I think it's why Innocence Abroad was so popular. Like it was Mark Twain's most popular novel. It was his most successful because people at the time. They're living vicariously yeah, through him. Yeah. Okay. Were, and that's why I think travel writing is so exciting to me. Right. But the limitation of travel writing is there's never like the personalization of like an arc isn't usually there. Okay. And you and so it's like that for it's me. Just, it's an adventure. Yeah, it's a it's a combination of travel writing. It's an adventure, but then I also wanted to have like people are better. You know, it's like the there's a hilarious Family Guy like uh, so uh, he's like making fun of the babies, making fun of the the dog character. And, oh, so you you're writing a novel? You're a uh, little uh, three act, little beginning, middle end, little. Uh, Everyone's better for it in the end. Learned a lesson. <laughs> little, uh, you know, like, right. it's, it's so funny to me, but it's, you know, there's such a truth. And like, I wanted, you know, just, again, even if it's just once you get to this thing and at the end, because of the totality of what you've already read, you go, oh, fuck. You, yeah, you were doing something there. There was something going on. And I don't get that in uh, Innocence Abroad, Mark Twain. It's just a pure, that's a sarcastic travel log. Right. You know, he was just taking the piss out of every possible, you know, culture as he was going through Europe and the Middle East and then on his way home. That book doesn't feel like what it feels like to travel. It's him, like, in a very kind of distancing. I don't even think he says his name or he, I don't think there's any scenes with him. It's just him kind of commenting on where he is. It's almost like a, um, like a newspaper. And what I wanted to do I wanted someone who has never trapped, like never left the country and they can read something and then go, oh, this is actually what it feels like to be running behind in an airport and the stress of going like, oh, if we miss this flight, we're gonna have to sleep in this airport. And, and I wanted to kind of really dig into the minutia of, of traveling in, in kind of a borderline boring way. But to make that mundaneness exciting and interesting, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. my first example is usually like after this, it's you know it implies that they're now going on the trip. That's right. At the end of the second second chapter, it's you basically bought you buy the tickets, right? In the movie yeah. version, chapter three then would be wheels land in Vietnam, right? But okay. in my novel, there are two chapters of them just going to the airport, right? And then the flights <laughs> and how it all just to get to Vietnam. I see. Okay. So we don't even get to Vietnam until chapter five. Okay, so the 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 lead character is uh, is a screenwriter uh, who <laughs> it's is totally not me. <laughs> uh, for sure, it's not. Who is disillusioned? Mm -hmm. And I just want to quote this thing here. Uh, besides the showrunner and myself, Rye. It's a, another screenwriter right his, his he's part of the team correct yes rise the only other white guy in the room it's no coincidence that once the vast television audience started to be properly represented in writers rooms and storylines there was an explosion of quality shows but having a diverse writing staff doesn't guarantee an audience. You also need a premise, a premise that doesn't suck, which is kind of self-evident. But that's a very interesting point you bring up there. Yeah, and that's new. That this came 
within the last couple of months of, you know, people being like, well, what to, specifically people asking me like, well, what, what are the races of the people in this writer's room? Like you have to, I mean, this is a huge conversation you're not having. That's a positive comment you just made there about diversity enabling quality programming. Yeah, I support the diversity. I, I want yes. to see the explosion of uh, different voices, and I, I, I want there that to... That haven't been there before. Correct. But the premise, what's... if For me, what's... Uh, I think I'm saying by not saying it is they... The only reason these two white guys are on the staff is because they were asked to be a paper team. So that means that in order for them to get a, a staff writing job, right. they each get paid 50% less. And everyone else on the writing staff is uh, someone of color or a woman. And I'm, you know, I'm dancing on a real tight line there of like that. There is something very true about that in this diversity push, a push that I recognize and support and want. Yes. Yet I still want a seat at the table. Yes. And of course, I I'm, I'm famous for stating the obvious. So in our class setting, I said, oh, you mean reverse uh, racism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. And and that, I, I'm guessing that didn't go across too well, just, but but anyway, let me just finish the thought. So I, I mean, if I identified what you're getting at, that's uh, a dog whistle for, reverse racism is a dog whistle for for the racists out there. Yeah, that. but that's not what I'm... Obvi- I, I mean, I hope it's obvious that I have no interest in that. What no, I have... Been, no, but but yeah. you're, you're bringing it up, and, and, yeah. and I guess you, so this could be championed by racists in a way. Well, you know, Doris Lessing was championed by a feminist, and she hated that. You know, like, she she was... You know, so you don't you don't get to decide how people respond no, to it. No, no. I guess what we 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 need to be concerned about is if you're going to look at this yeah. in any depth, is that going to screw your chances to get published? Well, I hope that there's somebody out there with some stones who, to me, it's a, it was a necessary correction. People who looked like me were awful to people who didn't look like me for the last what, I don't know, 2,000 years, let's just say. And there needs to be a correction. There were tremendous uh, misogyny, and the, we, we needed to change things. There, there needed to be social reform. And I agree with all of that social reform. It's just now fascinating that I've, in the book, I, I, that scene where he goes, I, I, if you were at least bisexual, I could help you get a job right now. But that's, that's what the agent says, yeah, yes. But I'm, I, I don't, he says... Uh, he didn't have the bandwidth to introduce a new writer around town. And if I'm being totally honest, I'm not sure how many new straight white males, male writers are uh, getting staff these days trying to be funny. He said, I mean, if you told me you were at least bisexual, I could work with that. And like, that's something that some people are just not going to want to hear. Like they're not—they're gonna be like, "Hey, white guys had it so good for so long that the pendulum has to go the other way." And I—I—I I, I want that pendulum to be there. I agree. There has been a—I I don't even have to agree. It's obvious that there's—you yeah. know—the writers' rooms have been predominantly straight, not well, probably straight white males. Yeah, uh, a lot of 
I mean, tr- tr- it is, traditionally, it does seem like there's a lot of Jewish writers as well, for whatever reason. But, um, you know, if I showed up in the 1980s, I probably would have gotten, you know, a job much easier and, and it would have been very easy. And I, I've just shown up at a time where it's now, I'm not even complaining. I'm just, ex- like, I, I'm just trying to explain the perspective of, like, no, how fascinating I, that is. Well, I, but you don't want to be perceived as being com- a complainer. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really not about complaining. It's like, I'm more just, like witnessing i'm like all right cool yeah no this is right we should have corrected this and now it's like okay cool i've now my peers who are of female and i'm watching people get jobs that some people i think that i'm stronger at writing but it's it's not and it's not a meritocracy and it it does feel like it's It's a social program it's being led by yeah the the politics now i agree with the politics Yes. So it's like, yes. it's a fascinating thing because if you were to talk to somebody on the hardcore right, they would be like, don't you see how it's it's negatively yeah. affecting yeah. you? And it's like... And we live in a country where merit should rule or where there shouldn't be quotas. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a little naivety. I just don't think that's how humans work. Like, no. like we were talking about before, you just want to be around people that you like. And right. talent is kind of the, the second thing. Now, in the end in an idealistic sort of way, do I think talent wins out? I still think that, you know, the best stuff will find its way. Well, that's, that's what I wanted to get at uh, sort of in winding down here is, okay, maybe you're not, sorry, the character is not going to get uh, hired or, uh, as quickly as people of color, let's And again, say. that's, I, I'm trying to... But I, no, sorry, let me just finish yeah. here and say, that doesn't mean that, that person shouldn't continue to strive to create what they're capable of creating and get it published whichever way. I mean, you look at, you look at all sorts of great writers and they started off self-publishing. Yeah. I, this has always been hard. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's always been difficult. It's always a tough thing. It's just, coming from very working class with, you know, very secular, no access to power or money, you know. Yeah. I I obviously understand that the systemic racism in this country and all of, I've I've educated myself, you know, in a way that um, I've become aware of things that I just didn't when I was younger. I grew up in a very homophobic place and things that I look back on, I'm just, just borderline. I mean, just, it's disgusting, some of that stuff. All of it. All of it's disgusting. But it's the... Uh, what is his name? Hart Heidegger? Martin Heidegger? He had this concept of thrownness. Meaning, we no one picked any of this. Right. I didn't pick being born Who in Minnesota. Who you were born to, yeah. I didn't pick yeah. any of this. Yeah. I, you know, I recognize that there's the privileges. I recognize the advantages that I've, I've seen third world Cambodian kids, you know, whose home gets, I, I, I recognize all of that. And I, yet I'm still in a position where this is the experience I had of like why it was challenging for me. Yes. And yes. if someone says, well, I don't, well, want and to- there was class, you know, classism or whatever you want to call it. There's, there's class and there's, there's gender and there's race. And these have all mm-hmm. been challenges yeah. for, for whoever's down at the bottom, right? Yeah, and it, what's weird is people just... And they haven't been published, for example. Yeah, and but th- it's just weird because, you know, it's like 
just the concept of white guilt is like fascinating. You know, it's like, all right, what does that even mean? You know, if I look back on what's, if I really turn back and go, all right, what, what, what happened? What, what should I be taking responsibility for at this point, at this time in my life? As a non-racist, uh, I'd like to think, you know, forward-thinking, open-minded, yeah. who is interested in equality for, you know, not necessarily uh, of, of outcome, but of opportunity. And my grandparents are, Ita- are Catholic Italians who came here in, or not my grandparents, my relatives, my, probably my great-great-great-grandparents, were Italian immigrants who, when they came to America, they were, there was tremendous racism. Yeah, I was going to say, they're treated like shit. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, Just like the Irish were. Correct. And that's changed, obviously. And um, It takes time, though. I yeah. Mean, that's what's happening. You know, yeah. And I think if people don't have any understanding of... You know, just the Protestants and the Catholics and how that all was, I mean, in England and Ireland, all of that, that was, in our country mm-hmm. was built by Puritans, by Protestants. And I, I'm trying to say this in a way that seems so obvious to me. The issue in this country isn't straight white males. It's straight white males who are oppressively religious and who come from generational wealth. George Washington was the Bill Gates of, he was so wealthy mm. and he was designing this country for people like him, for Anglo-Saxon, the waspier. I, my family was not that. And yet that's kind of been lost over time. And mm. people are just like, well, white people have all this advantage. You're like white people with tremendous amount of money and who are buying into these religious ideas that, and again, not to say that um, the, the experience of being black in America isn't way harder than being white. I'm not, it's three times more likely to be shot by a cop if you're black. The redlining, there's there's so many things that uh, systemically are awful in this country towards women and how we the Europeans uh, just destroyed the Native American population. There's so many things that are that are awful. And the thing that I think that we now at this point, right now today, even middle class or upper middle middle class, the the white people need to recognize or should recognize that if of any race, we're all in the same bucket at that point, from this point moving forward, that's how we're, this is going to get better. Not by saying like, oh, there's all this, we, we should be thinking about ourselves as different. And I live in a black neighborhood in LA and it's like, it's just people are people at some point and the, it's going to take a while to get to that. Totally. Point. And, and maybe I'm being naive and maybe, but is this what you want to get at in your novel? I want to talk about some of, you know, we'll see how much of this comes out, but, Okay, so uh, where are we in the trajectory of uh, finished manuscript? Full second draft. Give me a time frame. When's your goal to get this? Well, I mean, if we can stop going to Hemingway Bar and having (laughs) cocktails until however late night, the goal is to write here and finish a draft. I'd like to finish a third draft. Um, My buddy who uh, I left in Vietnam... He uh, is in Bali now, so I'm headed to Bali after the program, and I'd like to send him a version of the book that he can read, mm. so that when I get to Bali, we can sit down and have some like real conversations about, you know, where we think the the story should go. But your objective is to get this conversation on on the page, on the page in a novel. Yeah. And what what's the lesson? The, the lesson for me, and again, these are little bite-sized nuggets now that potentially may be cut or 
maybe layered in in a way where somebody's like, I didn't get that at all. But for me, it's the two concepts of if you want to be great, you have to learn how to finish. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes the greatest friendships don't always last. And that doesn't mean that either people are bad. It's just sometimes you have to learn how to accept loss. And that is something that I haven't had a, an easy time with. And through that, there's an examination of masculinity in the 21st century. So this is a, not a major theme that we've been talking about? Look, I can only write from my perspective. And from my perspective, as a, as a straight white male who is, was raised by incredibly liberal, incredibly sensitive women who were educated and who wanted to make a, a, a sweet, curious young man and put him into the world. And then when he got into that world, he was told that, you know, the patriarchy and all this stuff. And, and it's like, all that stuff is true, but where do I fit into that? as somebody who agrees with these, these, my politics are very liberal, yet I, I guess to me, what we needed to correct with like, let's say the, the Me Too movement was there was a lack of transparency on, on what was happening. So I hope that these are characters that in the 21st century, not just women, but men can, can maybe this would be very high. <laughs> I don't even know. Just the idea of like, what does a good man look like moving forward? Like, and still a man though, not, yeah. not, not a neutered, not a, uh, a placating, yeah. like you're still a fucking man. You still have opinions. You still enjoy sex. You still enjoy, you know, there's, you know that there's darkness in you and there's all this stuff, but how do you move forward now? And, in this and, environment. And, and, and yeah, in this environment. And I think I was naturally taught being raised by, so much uh, feminine energy, the idea of consent and the idea of treating people with respect. And I also didn't have any weird, you know, like you never know what happened. Like I have to imagine Harvey Weinstein, something happened to him when he was a kid to make mm, him yeah. like that. Yeah. I, I didn't have that stuff. So it was easy for me to treat women with respect. And from my perspective, you know, and this is just me being a sensitive kid who's had his heart ripped out of his chest a couple of times women have been very hard on me. And yeah. it's like, even just saying that out loud, people are like, I don't want to hear that. It's like, well, women, there's a toxicity to women as well that we, that I, I would like to, and you know, I want to have those conversations, whether anyone else wants to have them or not is to be determined, but. Okay, so what's your pitch to the prospective publisher? Short pitch. I'm the publisher. Why should I publish this? Um... Well, from a purely, like, I haven't put that hat on fully yet no. because I'm letting myself just be artistic about it. Okay. But if, but if we were to purely think about it from a, like, if I was just the marketing no, Not even, right? no, just you've, you've got some important messages for the world. So tell me why I should, I should publish that. To me, this, without saying it, I hope that I'm showing a, a, a version of, of, of these men that we could potentially move toward. Okay. Any publisher that's listening to this that has the cojones to <laughs> to move ahead with this. Yeah. The um, thing is, too, it's you've got to sell. Totally. So. But that title. <laughs> Two Hits of Acid in Cambodia. People yeah. seem to like that title. Very good. Well, uh, I like talking to you. Yeah, so pleasure is mine. Yeah. yeah. This has been awesome. Thanks again.